Well, we're going to read part of the Bible now. It's uh, from one of the great speakers in the Old Testament, uh, a man called Isaiah. Uh, he spoke about the sufferings, the evil things that would happen to Jesus. But from that evil, God would bring unspeakable good. So after chapter 53, which speaks of the sufferings of God's servant. Two chapters later, chapter 55, God speaking to needy people like you and me. Let's read Isaiah chapter 55. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labour on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen, that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendour. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper and instead of briars the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Well, that's a great part of God's word. We're now going to come and think about this issue of what God can't do in regards to sin and evil. We've all experienced what's sometimes called natural evil. Over 120,000 people have died of COVID in this last year. The real figure's probably higher than that because of all the related issues as well. That's a staggering figure. That's half of all the fatalities in the whole of World War II. Uh, the UK has had one of the very highest mortality rates per 100,000 people in the whole world. 
Another country, the United States, has seen a half a million, 500,000 people die in just one year related to COVID. That is more than all the casualties, the fatalities of World War I, World War II and the Vietnam War that the United States suffered put together in one year. The COVID pandemic is one of the worst eight pandemics in the whole history, the recorded history of the human race. It has been a great thing, a terrible thing, a great evil. And yet now we talk about hope, and that's right, we do. There is a pathway through it. But some will say, but the people I love are not on that journey now. It's been a hard thing to endure. That's what we call natural evil. Where's God in all that? But perhaps more, more difficult is that more personal, what we call moral evil. Now, at a trivial level, you might have experienced it. Some of you would have been at the family's seminar last Monday, and there was some honest acknowledgement. Yeah, COVID, there have been more rows. Loud voices, nasty words, hurt feelings. I guess a lot of people can identify with that. And if you've not been in a couple, you may have been spared that side of it, but you've known frustration, anger, maybe deep loneliness, perhaps self-pity. You, you've not been the person you wanted to be. You've not acted always and thought and felt as you ought to. That kind of evil, well, it's trivial compared to some kinds of moral evil. Sometimes evil is so shocking, so raw, so unspeakably painful that it completely bewilders you friend of mine. Oh, it's hard to say it even. His daughter was raped and murdered. His dear wife couldn't cope and a short while later she took her own life. That family saw evil unleashed upon them in a way that would just stun anyone. It would leave anybody in almost unhealable shock. When we talk about evil, it's no trivial thing, is it? Some through your working life, maybe you're a hospital worker and you, you see awful things happening to people. Some of it because somebody else has done something terrible. You work in A&E and you've seen the terrible effects of other people's evil. It may, may be in the armed forces, it may be in the police force, and you go, I can't even tell you the, some of the things I've seen and heard. It just, you wouldn't believe it. Evil can be so shocking, can't it? Whether it's so-called natural evil, the earthquakes and the tsunamis and the hurricanes and the illnesses, or whether it's inflicted and it's hurtful and it's spiteful and it's cruel and it's deliberate. That question is like, well, where's God in this? And, and so this series we're doing is, is not like academic. We're not just describing ideas, thoughts. We're talking about someone and what he's really like. And maybe the rubber really hits the road in this one, doesn't it? What is God like to do with evil? 
Well, we're going to start, in one sense, at a kind of simple level. We're going to start with, as it were, one plus one. Let's do the simple things first. Let's talk about God being good all the time, as the refrain says. God is good all the time. And the Bible wants us to know that the God of the Bible, as he says, here I am, this is what I'm like. He's good all the time. And that's sometimes put positively. So one of Jesus' closest friends, John, and he comes to write one of his letters to the early Christians. Uh, he tells them in 1 John chapter 1, uh, verse 5, this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Positively, God is light. All, all those positive things, no darkness at all. And he's there talking morally. And later on he goes on and says this about God. God is love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. God is love. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And he goes on to say, and this is how God showed his love amongst us. He goes on to say again in verse 16, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, God in them. God is light. God is love. God is good. A young man once came up to Jesus and asked her about, you know, he said to her, good master. And she said, there is only one who is good. That's what he said in Matthew. And in Mark, he said, more pointedly even, only God is good. God is good. In fact, the early Christians could say, you, you could know those who are really followers of Jesus. Those who claimed to be followers of Jesus but didn't live good lives, well, obviously weren't connected to him. This is how the Apostle Paul wrote in uh, Timothy, uh, uh, Titus chapter uh, 1 verse 16 he talks about people who claim to know God but by their actions they deny him he said they're unfit for doing anything good they claim it's one of the big sticking points isn't it you claim to know God but you're not living good lives he goes on in chapters 2 and 3 to talk about living such good lives you know, that our God has come that we might be delivered from living evil lives to live lives like him of transparent goodness god is light god is love god is good it's also put as it were negatively so in hebrews chapter 6 god speaks he makes an oath and the author goes on to say in verse 18 that god made this so clear by which it is impossible for god to lie it's not just that God tells the truth. He can't lie. He tells not only good things, but he can't tell wrong things. It's two unchangeable things. Verse 8, impossible for God to lie. Uh, elsewhere, uh, we're told that um, uh, James writes, James 1, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Uh, some concepts of God is that God is a bit of a mixture. Typically in the East, you may have come across the phrase yin and yang. 
they're kind of two sides of the same coin, light and darkness, good and evil. You can't have one without the other. But James says, no, God is not like that. God is he's the father of lights and there's no shadow. There's no backside. There's no dark side. There's no other side. That's what the Bible is telling us. God is good. And in that sense, the Bible says you can trust a God like that. He is consistently reliable, always good. He cannot do evil. Therefore, rely on him. Trust him. OK, let's make the maths a little bit more complicated. Uh, one plus one equals two. Let's do the opposite. One minus one equals naught. Now, for a little child, that often spoils the fun, doesn't it? You have an orange in this hand and you have an orange in that hand. One plus one equals two oranges. Great. But you have one and say, let's take the orange away. No orange left. And their chin drops. What's going on here? Well, sometimes life is a bit more complicated. And with God, the Bible says not only that God is good, God can bring good out of evil. And now we kind of know that ourselves, don't we? Good can come out of evil. Uh, if you've been looking up in the sky the last year, what have you missed? Well, you've missed the, what we call the vapour trails. There have not been many aircraft flying overhead. In a normal, busy working day, week, there are lots of aircraft flying over Bedford. An aircraft is one of the most safest ways of travel. The statistics tell us that for every billion kilometres, there are 2.57 fatalities if you're in a car. Uh, by rail, it's 0.27. But for flight, for every billion kilometres, it's 0.003. What does that mean? Well, donkeys years ago, it was reckoned that for every million aircraft journeys, there would be 40 fatalities. About 30 years ago, it had come down to 20 fatalities per million journeys. Now, it's around one per 10 million journeys. Aircraft are not only safe, they have become a lot safer. Why is that? Because good has come out of evil. The aircraft industry in particular, whenever there's a crash, there is an incredibly thorough examination of what went wrong. Was it mechanical? Was it pilot error? Uh, was it some failure of process? Did, what went wrong? And because they're so go into the detail, they go, ah, there's a design mistake here, or we didn't understand metal fatigue, or some mistake was made in filling the aircraft with the wrong fuel. How can we design it to make sure that can't happen? So evil, an aircraft cache, has, but it has led to procedures and and standards and training and design that makes a journey on an aircraft now one of the, f the, the safest way of traveling. Good has come out of evil. And God does that all the time. He brings great good out of great evil. Perhaps the greatest evil of all was the wicked way in which Jesus was brutally crucified. And God is honest about the brutality and the evil. The earliest Christian sermon, preacher Peter said, as he talked to the crowd, you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death 
by nailing him to the cross. It was unjust. It was horrible. It was, it flowed out of jealousy and hatred and malice. It was a wicked deed. But then he goes on to say, but God raised him from the dead. And because he raised him from the dead, there is a good news that God can now be just and the justifier of those who trust in Jesus. That, that means that God is still good all the time. But he can acquit the guilty, as it were, because Jesus took the guilty plea in our place. God, the judge, stepped into the dock and took the blame for our evil so that God is not compromised in his goodness, but he can set the guilty free justly. The greatest good out of the greatest evil. God is also active all the time in stopping evil by his goodness. Uh, there's a strange case, really, in 1 Samuel chapter 23. It's one of the few times in the Bible where we not only find out what is going to happen, but what might have happened. Uh, King David has been pursued by someone who wanted to kill him, King Saul. And he's come to a town called Kela, or Kela. And uh, while there, he prays to God and he says, Lord, uh, if I stay in this town, will the people of this town hand me over to Saul uh, and therefore I will die? And God says, yes, they will. And so David leaves the town and he doesn't die at Saul's hand. And what that passage tells us this is that God is preventing evil happening by his goodness. God knows what would have happened if you'd stepped off the pavement at that second. But he prevented you. God knows what happens if you, you got a bit earlier on that orange red light. You know, some of you will know the Back to the Future series of films. What would happen if? And it all starts with a, a young man jumping a red traffic light. And at the very last bit of the third of the great films, he doesn't jump the red traffic light and the whole of his life changes. Well, how many times does God not only bring good out of evil, but prevents evil in your life and you don't even know it? That is the God who's at work all the time. But there's one other thing. It's not just that God is good and God brings good out of evil. There's an element where God mysteriously is in control of all evil. Now, I say mysteriously because sometimes when we read it, it, it is mysterious. Let's look at an example of this. Uh, sticking with uh, David, 2 Samuel, the very last chapter. Uh, we're told this, 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. He incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So David takes the census, he counts the fighting men. And then verse 10, we read, David was conscience stricken after he'd counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I've done a very foolish thing. And then a judgment from God comes. Now, that not only is that complex, God, as it were, was determined to judge 
Israel. He lets David take a census for which David is judged. But it gets even more complex than that in a way. We find in the book of Chronicles. 1 Chronicles chapter 21. The same event is described. And this is how it's described. 1 Chronicles chapter 21 verse 1. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. And then the rest of the story goes on. David then says, I've sinned against God and God judges him. You go, what's going on here? Is it David? Is it Satan? Is it God? And what's God doing here? Well, before we rush to a judgment, let's think of a family. We're watching uh, something on the telly. I don't know, an exciting film. And, and look at the members of the family in the room. Well, there's Dad. What's he doing watching the film? Well, he's watching the film to just have a bit of a break and you can see his eyes getting heavy. His reason for watching the film is to have a break from work and perhaps have a bit of a snooze. And what's mum doing? Well, she's there in the room because she thinks, well, I've got all my family together. Maybe, well, like we can chat, maybe at least through the adverts, maybe. Anyway, she sees being in the room watching the film as an opportunity to chat. That's why she's there. What about your older brother? What's he doing? Well, you know, he's skiving off his homework. He's got loads to do. He's not done it. And he's sat in and watched the programme, kind of pretending that he's done his work. But, you know, he's just getting out of his homework because he's going to have to go back and do it. And what about your little little brother? What, what's he doing in the room? Well, he's hiding away in the corner. He's trying hopefully not to be noticed that he can stay up late. And his reason for watching the film is to really not go to bed. What about you? What are you doing watching the film? Well, you know, mum's got some treats in the fridge, some lovely things that uh, she got when the shopping came the other day and you don't want to miss out. You don't want to be out the room while the rest of the family are watching the film. Not because you're that bothered about the film, but because you think mum's going to bring out some of those delicious things in the fridge and I don't want to miss out. Five people doing the same thing, what we call concurrently. They're all watching the film, but they're doing it for very different reasons. Satan hates anything and everything to do with God. He hates David. He hates God. He wants to do everything to destroy. And David, the hint is that he counts the fighting men as an act of pride so that he could boast, so that he could put his hope in his military power. His motive is mixed. What is God doing? God is reacting to the evil that he's seen. Now, that's the complicated bit. And all through the centuries, Bible readers, Bible believers have tried to grapple with how do we how do we phrase that? How do we explain it? What's really going on here? Some things are quite clear. But even language begins to be at the very end of our ability to describe it. Let's go back to our maths, for example. Uh, we talked about one plus one and one minus one. We could have even talked about minus one times minus one. You work that one out. But let's go for, here's the orange, as it were. E equals MC squared. Perhaps one of the most famous mathematical formulas in the history of the human race. Energy equals mass 
mass times the speed of light squared. Like, what does that mean? I don't know either. It's something to do with complex mystery. There's something in it, but I don't understand it all. Martin introduced us a few weeks ago to the phrase paradox. Others have used the phrase antinomy. It's a kind of two things that can't seem to be true at the same time, but they are a mystery. God is in control of all evil without being evil himself. Hard to get your head around that, isn't it? Is it evil to allow evil? Well, no. God in his goodness is a world where real people, real persons, be they spiritual persons, angels and demons, or created people like us, we make decisions. Now, sometimes people have talked about what's called the so-called free will defense, that God has made a universe like a machine, and then there are plants and there are animals. Uh, animals are, uh, plants are alive, animals are alive with instinct and reactions and a, a more developed a reaction to pain and stimuli and so on. Then there are human beings who make moral decisions. And, and for moral decisions to be real, they can't just be automatic. That would be instinct. There would be no moral authenticity in one sense if we made a decision where we'd no choice. And, and so the, the way that the, the, the idea goes is that God, if he's ever to have a place where people make real choices between true alternatives, good means that there would have to be an alternative. Now, that's so called the so-called free will defence. It, it has real complexities to it. It doesn't always seem to work in every context of what we understand from the Bible. That's one way of trying to understand it. The idea of evil itself is a hard thing to get your head round. Is evil something? Well, if it's something, where has it come from? Has it always been there? The Bible would say, no, in the beginning was God, not God and evil. Evil is not something that God is battling with eternally in some big tussle. No, God is good. So where did evil come from? The answer is we don't know. Now, there are mysteries to evil, aren't there? God can be in control of evil without being responsible for evil. If you look back on my shelves, there's a big blue book halfway up on the uh, search shelf down. It's the works of William Shakespeare. And one author said, think of the, the Scottish play, Macbeth. Maybe you've done that one for GCSE or A-level. I didn't read it till I was much, much older. And I, I confess, Shakespeare's not easy to read, is it? But the gist of it is this, that Macbeth murders Duncan. Now, you could say, what was Shakespeare's role in that? Well, of course, in one sense, he authored it. He kind of wrote a character, Macbeth, who murdered Duncan. And, and there's this great scenes of Lady Macbeth with blood on her hands and all the rest of it. Now, ordinarily, you would not charge Shakespeare in a court of law for the murder of Duncan. You'd say, no, Macbeth is responsible in the play, not, not the author. But the author can write the play. He's above the play, what we said, transcendent. He's not responsible for it, but he, he, 
he writes a character so that he can portray how evil evil is. That's a good end, isn't it? A good purpose. Shakespeare, the author, portrays the awfulness of evil. He's portraying evil without being evil himself. Now, if that can happen to us in a play, could not an infinitely greater God be above evil, in control of evil? Bible puts it quite mysteriously in that passage which I described as the, the worst evil that ever happened. The murder of God's son. The verse didn't start with you with wicked hands have taken him. It started like this. Acts chapter 2 verse 23. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you with the help of wicked men, put him to death on a cross. There's an element where God intended one thing, you intended another. You are acting according to your own choices. You are responsible for those choices, but God was overruling. That is a mystery. And Christians said, whereas we trust God because he's good and we hope in God can he can bring good out of evil, we love God. When in the mystery of this, the God who made us, in one sense, we have been involved in evil, such evil, such appalling evil. We have sometimes felt evil. We've sometimes inflicted evil. We're part of a world where evil is awful. This good God, nevertheless, has, has so worked that he will overcome evil with his own goodness. Does that solve the issue of where evils come from? No. Is there a massive mystery? Yes, there is. Do we sometimes try and feel our way forward? Well, we've tried over the years. But at the end of the day, there is a God who's good and, and evil is real. And how those two sometimes marry in, we don't, we don't have all the answers this side. It may be always a mystery, but we know this God is good. Let me tell you a story about a man. This is a book he wrote. Uh, the man is Cyril Jode. The book is called God and Evil. At 1942. <laughs> I have a copy because it was given as a Sunday school prize to one of uh, Jenny's slightly distant relatives. Now Jode had been, uh, in 1942, household name. Uh, you know, you, you think of a household name, I know. Chris Evans. Uh, he was incredibly well known. He was on the Brains Trust. It was a sort of BBC, any questions type thing. Very famous guy. He was head of philosophy at Birkbeck College. He had described himself as a happy agnostic. Now, the book is really saying, I can't understand how a good God could have made a world where there is evil. I can't understand it. I can't square it. Uh, I don't understand, you know, how Christianity is that different from any other religion. Has it really done much good in 2000 years? I don't think so. He even goes on to say, and Jesus, I don't think he's that unique. In fact, I think there's things about Jesus I don't like at all. I think he's quite stern. He seems a bit anti-intellectual. He's often quite judgmental. He, he, he's very honest about how he thinks. He, at this point in his life, does not accept Christianity. The book, in many ways, is a rejection of Christianity, 1942. But what he says is this. As he experienced life, 
And as he saw the war develop, he, he came to this conclusion. Evil cannot be explained by poverty or repressed sexuality. They were the two favourite theories. The socialist view that all evil is due to lack of you know, environment, lack of education, poverty, etc. Or the psychological view that it's all to do with your repress repressions in which I said that does not make sense that does not add up he, he sees evil even in 1942 he was aware that he said uh, very great evil unleashed in the Nazis he said uh, violent successful power he said if it's violent enough and successful enough it looks like it gets away with it and it always justifies it he says on scientific terms the data suggests that the Jews must be eradicated from Poland. That's 1942, he picks it up. He says, look, I've come to this conclusion. I see evil, real evil in the world. And then he goes on and says, I see real evil in me. I've treated women shabbily, and, and he had. And he said, I can't, I can't conquer my love, my lust for food. He was quite portly. He couldn't control his own appetite. That's what he said. But he also said this, I also see goodness, beauty and truth. And when I mean goodness, I don't mean things I like or things that lots of people like or even things that the government of the day like. I mean real goodness, not preferences, not aesthetic, real goodness, real truth and genuine beauty. What happened after that? Well, the end of the war opened up far greater evils than he was aware of in 1942. The Nuremberg trials, the horrors of Auschwitz and Belsen. Uh, he, he, he'd seen great evil. Uh, he once was a very strong supporter of Soviet Union. But there, then that exposed horrifying evils. But not just out there. 1948, he took a train journey from Waterloo in London to Exeter. He had boasted, whenever I can, I try and cheat the train companies. He was caught. He was ashamed. He lost his uh, job at the BBC. He was kicked off the Brains Trust immediately. He had been considered for some kind of uh, recognition, maybe even a knighthood. That went. And he never even made it to be professor of the uh, Department of Philosophy at Birkbeck College. He lost a lot in 1948. He saw and felt not just evil out there, he saw evil in here. In 1952, his last book was called The Recovery of Belief. In this book, he quotes C.S. Lewis 50 odd times, dismissing him most of the time, although he admires his writing and says that uh, C.S. Lewis, like him, had been atheistical, agnostical and changed his view and was now a, a lucid, persuasive writer for Christianity. But I don't agree with anything he says. But by 1952, he had thought more deeply about evil and its reality. 
and he had let evil drive him towards the God who showed not just goodness, but grace. He read and interacted more with Lewis. You, you can feel that in some of his later writings. He recovered his trust in the good God who sent his one and only son to take the full blame for the evil that people like you and I had done. He put his faith in Christ. He found mercy. He did what Isaiah said. Had he solved all his philosophical problems about evil? No, he hadn't. But he felt the Bible gave good enough, good and sufficient answers. More than that, not just answers, but an experience and a reality and a sense that this is what I was made for. He came to put his faith, hope and love in God. And he worshipped. Cyril Edwin Mitchison Jode died the very next year. 1953, aged just 61. You're going to meet him in heaven because in his helplessness, in a world where evil is real, he reached out to the God of mercy and goodness and grace. He couldn't work it all out, but he knew this. God was good and God was gracious. And God offered him in his goodness that grace and mercy. And that's where we're going to find our rest, isn't it, ourselves? We trust the God of all grace. We find him at the cross where he was forsaken that we may never be. Well, as Christians at the end of our series, let's experience that for ourselves. Let us put our faith, hope and love in him and worship. Amen.